Story nine, chapter four of the Man Without a Country and Other Tales by Edward Everett Hale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story nine, the Children of the Public, chapter four, the Crisis, part one. I was at work as a veneerer in a pianoforte factory at Attica when some tariff or other was passed or repealed. There came a great financial explosion, and our boss, among the rest, failed. He owed us all six months' wages, and we were all very poor and very blue. Jonathan Whitmore, a real good fellow, he used to cover the hammers with leather, came to me the day the shop was closed, and told me he was going to take the chance to go to Europe. He was going to the musical conservatory at Leipzig, if he could. He would work his passage out as a stoker. He would wash himself for three or four days at Bremen, and then work, if he could, with Voigtlander or von Hammer, till he could enter the conservatory. By way of preparation for this, he wanted me to sell him my Adler's German dictionary. I've nothing to give you for it, Felix, but this foolish thing. It was one of Burham's tickets, which I bought in a frolic the night of our sleigh-ride. I'll transfer it to you." I told Jonathan he might have the dictionary and welcome. He was doing a sensible thing, and he would use it twenty times as much as I should. As for the ticket, he had better keep it. I did not want it. But I saw he would feel better if I took it, so he endorsed it to me. Now the reader must know that this Burham was a man who had got hold of one corner of the idea of what the public could do for its children. He had found out that there were a thousand people who would be glad to make the tour of the mountains and the lakes every summer if they could do it for half price. He found out that the railroad companies were glad enough to put the price down if they could be sure of the thousand people. He mediated between the two and so cheap excursions came into being. They are one of the gifts the public gives its children. Rising from step to step, Burham had, just before the great financial crisis, conceived the idea of a great cheap combination, in which everybody was to receive a magazine for a year and a cyclopedia, both at half price. And not only so, but the money that was gained in the combination was to be given by lot to two ticket-holders, one a man and one a woman, for their dowry in marriage. I dare say the reader remembers the prospectus. It savors too much of the modern gift enterprise to be reprinted in full, but it had this honest element, that everybody got more than he could get for his money in retail. I have my magazine, the old Boston Miscellany, to this day and I just now looked out Lavoisier's name in my cyclopedia, and, as you will see, I have reason to know that all the other subscribers got theirs. One of the tickets for these books, for which Whitmore had given five good dollars, was what he gave to me for my dictionary. And so we parted. I loitered at Attica, hoping for a place where I could put in my oar but my hand was out at teaching, and in a time when all the world's veneers of different kinds were ripping off, nobody wanted me to put on more of my kind, so that my cash ran low. I would not go in debt, that is a thing I never did, 
more honest, I say, to go to the poorhouse and make the public care for its child there than to borrow what you cannot pay. But I did not come quite to that, as you shall see. I was counting up my money one night, and it was easily done, when I observed that the date on this Burham order was the 15th of October, and it occurred to me that it was not quite a fortnight before those books were to be delivered. They were to be delivered at Castle Garden in New York, and the thought struck me that I might go to New York, try my chance there for work, and at least see the city, which I had never seen, and get my cyclopedia and magazine. It was the least offer the public ever made to me, but just then the public was in a collapse, and the least was better than nothing. The plan of so long a journey was quixotic enough, and I hesitated about it a good deal. Finally I came to this resolve. I would start in the morning to walk to the lock station at Brockport on the canal. If a boat passed that night where they would give me my fare for any work I could do for them, I would go to Albany. If not, I would walk back to Lockport the next day and try my fortune there. This gave me, for my first day's enterprise, a foot journey of about twenty-five miles. It was out of the question, with my finances, for me to think of compassing the train. Every point of life is a pivot on which turns the whole action of our afterlives, and so indeed of the afterlives of the whole world. But we are so pure blend that we only see this of certain special enterprises and endeavors which we therefore call critical. I am sure I see it of that twenty-five miles of fresh autumnal walking. I was in tip-top spirits. I found the air all oxygen and everything all right. I did not loiter and I did not hurry. I swung along with the feeling that every nerve and muscle drew, as in the trades a sailor feels of every rope and sail. And so I was not tired, not thirsty, till the brook appeared where I was to drink, nor hungry till twelve o'clock came when I was to dine. I called myself, as I walked, the child of good fortune, because the sun was on my right quarter, as the sun should be when you walk, because the rain of yesterday had laid the dust for me, and the frost of yesterday had painted the hills for me, and the northwest wind cooled the air for me. I came to Wilkie's crossroads just in time to meet the Claremont baker and buy my dinner loaf of him, and when my walk was nearly done, I came out on the low bridge at Sewell's, which is a drawbridge, just before they raised it for a passing boat, instead of the moment after. Because I was all right, I felt myself and called myself the child of good fortune. Dear reader, in a world made by a loving father, we are all of us children of good fortune, if we only have wit enough to find it out as we stroll along. The last stroke of good fortune which that day had for me was the solution of my question whether or no I would go to Babylon. I was to go if any good-natured boatman would take me. This is a question, Mr. Millionaire, more doubtful to those who have not drawn their dividends than to those who have. As I came down the village street at Brockport, I could see the horses of a boat bound eastward, led along from level to level at the last lock. 
and, in spite of my determination not to hurry, I put myself on the long, loping trot which the St. Regis Indians taught me, that I might overhaul this boat before she got under way at her new speed. I came out on the upper gate of the last lock, just as she passed out from the lower gate. The horses were just put on, and a reckless boy gave them their first blow after two hours of rest and corn. As the heavy boat started off under the new motion, I saw, and her skipper saw at the same instant, that a long new tow-rope of his, which had lain coiled on deck, was suddenly flying out to its full length. The outer end of it had been carried upon the lock-side by some chance or blunder, and there some idle loafer had thrown the looped bite of it over a hawser-post. The loafers on the lock saw, as I did, that the rope was running out, and at the call of the skipper one of them condescended to throw the loop overboard, but he did it so carelessly that the lazy rope rolled over into the lock, and the loop caught on one of the valve-irons of the upper gate. The whole was the business of an instant, of course, but the poor skipper saw, what we did not, that the coil of the rope on deck was foul, and so tangled around his long tiller that ten seconds would do one of three things. They would snap his new rope in two, which was a trifle, or they would wrench his tiller-head off the rudder, which would cost him an hour to mend, or they would upset those two horses at this instant on a trot, and put into the canal the rowdy youngster who had started them. It was this complex certainty which gave fire to the double cries which he addressed aft to us on the lock, and forward to the magnet boy, whose indifferent intelligence at that moment drew him along. I was stepping upon the gatehead to walk across it. It took but an instant, not nearly all the ten seconds, to swing down by my arms into the lock, keeping myself hanging by my hands, to catch with my right foot the bite of the rope, and lift it off the treacherous iron, to kick the whole thing into the water, and then to scramble up the wet lock-side again. I got a little wet, but that was nothing. I ran down the tow-path, beckoned to the skipper, who sheared his boat up to the shore, and I jumped on board. At that moment, reader, Fausta was sitting in a yellow chair on the deck of that musty old boat, crocheting from a pattern in Grody's lady-book. I remember it as I remember my breakfast of this morning. Not that I fell in love with her, nor did I fall in love with my breakfast, but I knew she was there, and that was the first time I ever saw her. It is many years since, and I have seen her every day from that evening to this evening. But I had then no business with her. My affair was with him whom I have called the skipper, by way of adapting this fresh-water narrative to ears accustomed to Marriott and Tom Kringle. I told him that I had to go to New York, that I had not time to walk, and had not money to pay, that I should like to work my passage to Troy if there were any way in which I could, and to ask him this I had come on board. "'Wow,' said the skipper, "'tain't much that is to be done, and Zekiel and I calculate to do most of that, and there's that blamed boy beside.' 
This adjective blamed is the virtuous oath by which simple people who are improving their habits cure themselves of a stronger epithet, as men take to flag-root who are abandoning tobacco. "'He ain't good for nothing, as you see,' continued the skipper meditatively. "'And uh, you air, anybody can see that,' he added. "'If you've mind to come to Albany, you can have your vittles, poor enough they are, too, and if you're willing to ride sometimes, uh, you can ride. I guess where there's room for three in the bunks, there's room for four. Tain't everybody would have cast off that blamed house rope as neat as you did.' From which last remark I inferred, what I learned as a certainty as we travelled farther, that but for the timely assistance I had rendered him, I should have pled for my passage in vain. This was my introduction to Fausta, that is to say, she heard the whole of the conversation. The formal introduction, which is omitted in no circle of American life to which I have ever been admitted, took place at tea half an hour after, when Mrs. Grills, who always voyaged with her husband, brought in the flapjacks from the kitchen. "'Mess Jones,' said Grills, as I came into the meal, leaving Zekiel at the tiller, "'Mess Jones, this is a young man who's gone to Albany. I don't rightly know how to call your name, sir.' I said my name was Carter. Then he said, uh, "'Mr. Carter, this is Miss Jones. Mrs. Grills, Mr. Carter. Mr. Carter, Mrs. Grills. She is my wife.' and so our parti carrier was established for the voyage. In these days there are few people who know that a journey on a canal is the pleasantest journey in the world. A canal has to go through fine scenery. It cannot exist unless it follows through the valley of a stream. The movement is so easy that with your eyes shut you do not know you move. The route is so direct that when you are once shielded from the sun you are safe for hours. You draw, you read, you write, or you sew, crochet, or knit. You play on your flute or your guitar without one hint of inconvenience. At a low bridge you duck your head lest you lose your hat, and that reminder teaches you that you are human. You are glad to know this, and you laugh at the memento. For the rest of the time you journey, if you are all right within, in Elysium. I rode one of those horses perhaps two or three hours a day. At locks I made myself generally useful. At night I walked the deck till one o'clock, with my pipe or without it, to keep guard against the lock thieves. The skipper asked me sometimes, after he found I could cipher, to disentangle some of the knots in his bills of lading for him. But all this made but a little inroad in those lovely autumn days, and for the eight days that we glided along, there is one blessed level which is seventy miles long, I spent most of my time with Fausta. We walked together on the towpath to get our appetites for dinner and for supper. At sunrise I always made a cruise inland and collected the gentians and black alderberries and colored leaves with which she dressed Mrs. Grill's table. She took an interest in my wretched sketch-book, and though she did not and does not draw well, she did show me how to spread an even tent, which I never knew before. 
I was working up my French. She knew about as much and as little as I did, and we read Madame Rebaud's Clementine together, guessing at the hard words, because we had no dictionary. Dear old Grill offered to talk French at table, and we tried it for a few days, but it proved he picked up his pronunciation at St. Catherine's, among the boatmen there, and he would say shwo for horses, where the book says chevo. Our talk, on the other hand, was not Parisian, but it was not Catherinean, and we subsided into English again. So sped along these blessed eight days. I told Fausta thus much of my story, that I was going to seek my fortune in New York. She, of course, knew nothing of me but what she saw, and she told me nothing of her story. But I was very sorry when we came into the basin of Troy, for I knew then that in all reason I must take the steamboat down, and I was very glad, I have seldom in my life been so glad, when I found that she also was going to New York immediately. She accepted, very pleasantly, my offer to carry her trunk to the Isaac Newton for her, and to act as her escort to the city. For me, my trunk, in danger tried, swung in my hand, nor left my side. My earthly possessions were few anywhere. I had left at Attica most of what they were. Through the voyage I had been man enough to keep on a working gear fit for a workman's duty, and old Grills had not yet grace enough to keep his boat still on Sunday. How one remembers little things! I can remember each touch of the toilet, as in that corner of a dark cuddy where I had shared Zekiel's bunk with him. I dressed myself with one of my two white shirts, and with the change of raiment which had been tight squeezed in my portmanteau. The old overcoat was the best part of it, as in a finite world it often is. I sold my felt hat to Zekiel, and appeared with a light travelling cap. I do not know how Fausta liked my metamorphosis. I only know that, like butterflies for a day or two after they go through theirs, I felt decidedly cold. As Carter, the canal man, I had carried Fausta's trunk on board. As Mr. Carter, I gave her my arm, led her to the gangway of the Newton, took her passage and mine, and afterwards walked and sat through the splendid moonlight of the first four hours down the river. Miss Jones determined that evening to breakfast on the boat be it observed that I did not then know her by any other name. She was to go to an aunt's house, and she knew that if she left the boat on its early arrival in New York, she would disturb that lady by a premature ringing at her bell. I had no reason for haste, as the reader knows. The distribution of the cyclopedias was not to take place till the next day, and that absurd trifle was the only distinct excuse I had to myself for being in New York at all. I asked Miss Jones, therefore, if I might not be her escort still to her aunt's house. I had said it would be hard to break off our pleasant journey before I had seen where she lived, and I thought she seemed relieved to know that she would not be wholly a stranger on her arrival. It was clear enough that her aunt would send no one to meet her. These preliminaries adjusted, we parted to our respective cabins, 
and when the next morning at that unearthly hour demanded by philadelphia trains and other exigencies the newton made her dock i rejoiced that breakfast was not till seven o'clock that i had two hours more of the berth which was luxury compared to zekiel's bunk i turned upon my other side and slept on sorry enough for that morning nap was i for the next thirty-six hours for when i went on deck and sent in the stewardess to tell miss jones that i was waiting for her and then took from her the check for her trunk i woke to the misery of finding that in that treacherous two hours some pirate from the pier had stepped on board had seized the waiting trunk left almost alone while the baggage-master's back was turned and that to a certainty it was lost i did not return to fausta with this story till the breakfast bell had long passed and the breakfast was very cold i did not then tell it to her till i had seen her eat her breakfast with an appetite much better than mine i had already offered upstairs the largest reward to anybody who would bring it back which my scanty purse would pay i had spoken to the clerk who had sent for a policeman i could do nothing more and i did not choose to ruin her chop and coffee by ill-timed news the officer came before breakfast was over and called me from table on the whole his business-like way encouraged one he had some clues which i had not thought possible it was not unlikely that they should pounce on the trunk before it was broken open i gave him a written description of its marks and when he civilly asked if my lady would give some description of any books or other articles within i readily promised that i would call with such a description at the police station somewhat encouraged i returned to miss jones and when i led her from the breakfast table told her of her misfortune i took all shame to myself for my own carelessness to which i attributed the loss but i told her all that the officer had said to me and that i hoped to bring her the trunk at her aunt's before the day was over fausta took my news however with a start which frightened me all her money but a shilling or two was in the trunk to place money in trunks is a weakness of the female mind which i have nowhere seen accounted for worse than this though as appeared after a moment's examination of her travelling sack her portfolio in the trunk contained the letter of the aunt whom she came to visit giving her her address in the city to this address she had no other clue but that her aunt was mrs mary mason had married a few years before a merchant named mason whom miss jones had never seen and of whose name and business this was all she knew they lived in a numbered street but whether it was fourth street or fifty-fourth or one hundred and twenty-fourth or whether it was something between the poor child had no idea she had put up the letter carefully but had never thought of the importance of the address besides this aunt she knew no human being in new york child of the public i said to myself what do you do now i had appealed to my great patron in sending for the officer and on the whole i felt that my sovereign had been gracious to me if not yet hopeful 
but now I must rub my lamp again, and ask the genie where the unknown mason lived. The genie, of course, suggested the directory, and I ran for it to the clerk's office. But as we were toiling down the pages of masons, and had written off thirteen or fourteen who lived in numbered streets, Fausta started, looked back at the preface and its date, flung down her pencil in the only abandonment of dismay in which I ever saw her, and cried, First of May! They were abroad until May! They have been abroad since the day they were married! So that genie had to put his glories into his pocket, and carry his directory back to the office again. The natural thing to propose was that I should find for Miss Jones a respectable boarding-house, and that she should remain there until her trunk was found, or until she could write to friends who had this fatal address, and receive an answer. But here she hesitated. She hardly liked to explain why, did not explain wholly. But she did not say that she had no friends who knew this address. She had but few relations in the world, and her aunt had communicated with her alone since she came from Europe. As for the boarding-house, I had rather look for work, she said bravely. I have never promised to pay money when I did not know how to obtain it. And that, and here she took out fifty or sixty cents from her purse, and that is all now. In respectable boarding-houses, when people come without luggage, they are apt to ask for an advance. Or at least, she added with some pride, I am apt to offer it. I hastened to ask her to take all my little store, but I had to own that I had not two dollars. I was sure, however, that my overcoat and the dress suit I wore would avail me something if I thrust them boldly up some spout. I was sure that I should be at work within a day or two. At all events, I was certain of the cyclopedia the next day. That should go to Old Gowans, in Fulton Street it was then, the moral centre of the intellectual world, in the hour I got it. And at this moment, for the first time, the thought crossed me, if mine could only be the name drawn, so that that foolish five thousand dollars should fall to me. In that case I felt that Fausta might live in a respectable boarding-house till she died. Of this, of course, I said nothing, only that she was welcome to my poor dollar and a half, and that I would receive the next day some more money that was due me. "'You forget, Mr. Carter,' replied Fausta, as proudly as before, "'you forget that I cannot borrow of you any more than of a boarding-house keeper. I never borrow.' Please, God, I never will. It must be, she added, that in a Christian city like this there is some respectable and fit arrangement made for travellers who find themselves where I am. What that provision is I do not know, but I will find out what it is before this sun goes down. I paused a moment before I replied. If I had been fascinated by this lovely girl before, I now bowed in respect before her dignity and resolution, and with my sympathy there was a delicious throb of self-respect united when I heard her lay down so simply as principles of her life, two principles on which I had always myself tried to live. 
the half expressed habits of my boyhood and youth were now uttered for me as axioms by lips which I knew could speak nothing but right and truth. I paused a moment. I stumbled a little as I expressed my regret that she would not let me help her, joined with my certainty that she was in the right in refusing, and then it, the only stiff speech I ever made to her, I said, I am the child of the public. If you will ever hear my story, you will say so too. At the least I can claim this, that I have a right to help you in your quest as to the way in which the public will help you. Thus far I am clearly the officer in his suite to whom he has entrusted you. Are you ready, then, to go on shore? Fausta looked around on that forlorn lady's saloon as if it were the last link holding her to her old safe world. Looked upon skylight lamp and chain as what she ne'er might see again. Then she looked right through me, and if there had been one mean thought in me at that moment, she would have seen the viper. Then she said, sadly, I have perfect confidence in you, though people would say we were strangers. Let us go. And we left the boat together. We declined the invitation of the noisy hackman and walked slowly to Broadway. We stopped at the station house for that district, and to the attentive chief Fausta herself described those contents of her trunk which she thought would be most easily detected if offered for sale. Her mother's Bible, at which the chief shook his head, Bibles, alas, brought nothing at the shops, a soldier's medal, such as were given as target prizes by the Montgomery Regiment, and a little silver canteen marked with the device of the same regiment, seemed to him better worthy of note. Her portfolio was wrought with a cipher, and she explained to him that she was most eager that this should be recovered. The pocket-book contained more than one hundred dollars, which she described, but he shook his head here, and gave her but little hope of that, if the trunk were once opened. His chief hope was for this morning. "'And where shall we send to you, then, madam?' said he. I had been proud, as if it were my merit, of the impression Fausta had made upon the officer in her quiet, simple, ladylike dress and manner. For myself I thought that one slip of pretense in my dress or bearing, a scrap of gold or of pinchbeck, would have ruined both of us in our appeal. But fortunately I did not disgrace her, and the man looked at her as if he expected her to say, Fourteenth Street. What would she say? That depends upon what the time will be. Mr. Carter will call at noon, and will let you know. We bowed and were gone. In an instant more she begged my pardon, almost with tears, but I told her that if she also had been a child of the public, she could not more fitly have spoken to one of her father's officers. I begged her to use me as her protector, and not to apologize again. Then we laid out the plans which we followed out that day. The officer's manner had reassured her, and I succeeded in persuading her that it was certain we should have the trunk at noon. 
how much better to wait, at least so far, before she entered on any of the enterprises of which she talked so coolly as of offering herself as a nursery girl or as a milliner to whoever should employ her if only she could thus secure an honest home till money or till aunt were found once persuaded that we were safe from this quixotism i told her that we must go on as we did on the canal and first we must take our constitutional walk for two hours at least she said our good papa the public gives us wonderful sights to see and good walking to our feet as a better father has given us this heavenly sky and this bracing air and with those words the last heaviness of despondency left her face for that day and we plunged into the delicious adventure of exploring a new city staring into windows as only strangers can revelling in print shops as only they do really seeing the fine buildings as residents always forget to do and laying up in short with those streets nearly all the associations which to this day we have with them two hours of this tired us with walking of course i do not know what she meant to do next but at ten i said time for french miss jones oh oui said she mais où and i had calculated my distances and led her at once into lafayette place and in a moment pushed open the door of the astor library led her up the main stairway and said this is what the public provides for his children when they have to study this is the astor said she delighted and we are all right as you say here then she saw that our entrance excited no surprise among the few readers men and women who were beginning to assemble we took our seats at an unoccupied table and began to revel in the luxuries for which we had only to ask that we might enjoy i had a little memorandum of books which i had been waiting to see she needed none but looked for one and another and yet another and between us we kept the attendant well in motion a pleasant thing to me to be finding out her thoroughbred tastes and lines of work and i was happy enough to interest her in some of my pet readings and of course for she was a woman to get quick hints which had never dawned on me before a very short hour and a half we spent there before i went to the station-house again i went very quickly i returned to her very slowly the trunk was not found but they were now quite sure they were on its track they felt certain it had been carried from pier to pier and taken back up the river nor was it hopeless to follow it the particular rascal who was supposed to have it would certainly stop either at piermont or at newburgh they had telegraphed to both places and were in time for both the day-boat sir will bring your lady's trunk and will bring me rowdy rob too i hope said the officer but at the same moment as he rang his bell he learned that no dispatch had yet been received from either of the places named i did not feel so certain as he did but fausta showed no discomfort as i told my news thus far said she the public serves me well i will borrow no trouble by want of faith and i as dante would say 
and I to her, will you let me remind you, then, that at one we dine, that Mrs. Grills is now placing the salt pork upon the cabin table, and Mr. Grills asking the blessing. And as this is the only day when I can have the honour of your company, will you let me show you how a child of the public dines when his finances are low? Fausta laughed, and said again, less tragically than before, I have perfect confidence in you, little thinking how she started my blood with the words. But this time, as if in token, she let me take her hand upon my arm, as we walked down the street together. If we had been snobs, or even if I had been one, I should have taken her to tailors, and have spent all the money I had on such a luncheon as neither of us had ever eaten before. Whatever else I am, I am not a snob of that sort. I show my colours. I led her into a little cross-street which I had noticed in our erratic morning pilgrimage. We stopped at a German baker's. I bade her sit down at the neat marble table, and I bought two rolls. She declined lager, which I offered her in fun. We took water instead, and we had dined and had paid two cents for our meal, and had had a very merry dinner, too, when the clock struck two. And now, Mr. Carter, said she, I will steal no more of your day. You did not come to New York to escort lone damsels to the Astor Library or to dinner nor did I come only to see the lions or to read French. I insist on your going to your affairs and leaving me to mine. If you will meet me at the library half an hour before it closes, I will thank you. Till then, with a tragedy shake of the hand and a merry laugh, adieu. I knew very well that no harm could happen to her in two hours of an autumn afternoon. I was not sorry for her congé for it gave me an opportunity to follow my own plans. I stopped at one or two cabinet-makers and talked with the jours about work that I might tell her with truth that I had been in search of it. Then I sedulously began on calling upon every man I could reach named Mason. Oh, how often I went through one phrase or another of this colloquy! Is Mr. Mason in? That's my name, sir. Can you give me the address of Mr. Mason who returned from Europe last May? No, no such person, sir. The reader can imagine how many forms this dialogue could be repeated in, before, as I wrought my way through a long line of dry-goods cases to a distant counting-room, I heard some one in it say, No, madam, I know no such person as you describe. And from the recess Fausta emerged and met me. Her plan for the afternoon had been the same with mine. We laughed as we detected each other. Then I told her she had had quite enough of this, that it was time she should rest, and took her, nolens volens, into the ladies' parlour of the St. Nicholas, and bade her wait there through the twilight, with my copy of Clementine, till I should return from the police station. If the reader has ever waited in such a place for someone to come and attend to him, he will understand that nobody will be apt to molest him when he has not asked for attention. End of Story 9, Chapter 4, Part 1